welcome back to the Pops Podcast. This week, Kishore is back, but with a little bit of a twist. I know if you've been following the Pops Podcast for many years now, we've been in Matthew for, well, it seems like 17 years. But Kishore's taken a little bit of a break from Matthew, and I'll let him explain the direction he's going. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So we finished at the start of Matthew 10, right? So Jesus sends out his disciples, right? He sends them out into the world. And anyone watching The Chosen, you saw how they started this year's Chosen episodes with Jesus sending out the 12. And it gave us like this real picture. Like these were just regular guys, like Pops guys, just like us. And they're being told to go. And you see the fear in their eyes, this idea, am I ready? I'm pretty anxious about being told to go to places I've never been before. Are we really ready for this? And, and I feel like that sometimes with us here at Pops, like God is speaking to us. And he's telling us what he wants us to do, but some of us may feel a little bit worried, a little bit afraid. And so we're going to keep that challenge going. But here we are at Pops. We go verse by verse through the Bible. We never skip a verse. And we're going to take a pause in Matthew for a little while. There's not much air in here, guys. We're not at Knob Hill. Don't suck in that much air at the same time. No, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You see, the Lord has been speaking to me over the last year, year and a half, so vividly through his parables. And I've been thinking to myself, i got to get through Matthew because at some point I want to go through these parables with, with the guys at Pops. And at the rate we were going, right, I don't know like how many years it would have taken to get to that point. And so I, I it entered into a time of prayer. I talked with the other Pops leaders and I said, I think that's not forever. For a pause, I want to go through some of the parables together and learn what it is that God has in store for us. You may have heard... Uh, when I was at Big C last year, we went through the, the parable of the, of the great banquet. And that was you know, part of this thought process in my mind as we've been going through this. And so I hear you. Are we ever going to get back to Matthew? I've got grandchildren that are depending on this Matthew study. And yes, we will get back to Matthew. I promise you. But today we're going to start with our first parable. And this is going to be an easy one for all of us. It's going to be the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because why not start off with a parable, with a little bit of heaven and hell, right? Why not? Well, let's look, let's look at this parable here. But before we do, let me just pray. Lord God, I praise you. I praise you that we are here today together. I praise you that you have chosen to use this faulty vessel, Lord, to bring your word, God. And I pray that as I share it, God, that the things that you shared with me, I would share clearly with the guys and that we would be changed, Lord, that we would impact this area because of who you are and what you are doing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read through this parable together in Luke 16, verses 19 through 30. It said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received, good, you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So I titled this message, The Great Chasm. The Great Chasm. So if we want to understand parables, we might look at this parable and perhaps maybe someone has simplistically explained it to you or you've thought of it this way. It's if you're, go, if you're poor, you go to heaven and you hang out with Father Abraham and you spend all your time watching the rich burn in hell forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's go to Post Pops. No. No, there are so many folks who misinterpret the parables by trying to make them mean something that they were never intended to mean. So when trying to understand a parable, you have to know the setting, and you have to know the intended audience. It's the only way to get the real meaning that Jesus was trying to share with them. And that often begins by reading just a few verses before the parable begins. So in this particular parable, Luke 16, 13 through 14, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus gave the same warning about serving one master when we looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24. And at that time, we were talking about how Jesus intentionally was choosing this slave and master type of terminology because a slave can only serve one master. And we can choose to be a slave to God as our master, and then we would reap those rewards of having a loving, other-oriented, self-sacrificial master who promises to be with us forever and ever. Or we can choose to become a slave to this rival god known as mammon, or mammonas in the Greek. You see, this, this word, when it's translated money, you can only, you can serve God, you can't serve God and money. That word money is actually mammonas, which is this, this god, lowercase lower g, who is the god of money in that time frame. That's what they would have thought. So what Jesus is telling them is that you can choose one or the other, but you can't choose both. And here in America, this is a real problem because mammon is a very powerful false god in our culture. He's a god that so many serve here in this country because he lures us with the money and the attractions of money and material things. And here we are in this land full of resources, right? If I wanted to go buy the newest iPhone, I can just go with a credit card to the store down the street and it's there. You can get anything you want rapidly in this country. And every advertisement that we see on TV, it tells us you need more. You need more. You need more. You won't be happy until you get more. It's all about serving mammon. And it says in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of mammon. They were lovers of the money, the attraction to money. They even ridiculed Jesus, the Son of God, for warning them about loving mammon. It says that word ridiculed it's actually a Greek word, ekmokterizo, which is, the meaning is very, it's actually literally a backward tilting of the head and a closing of one nostril and a blow. They were blowing their noses at the Son of God. Expelling the mucus is what it's intended to mean. 
And things haven't really changed that much in terms of mammon from that time until today. People automatically then and now think that when you are blessed with riches, that means that you must be blessed by God. And if you are poor, then that must somehow be God's judgment on you or on your ancestors or something along those lines. And, the, and that money is, is something for us to get bigger houses, nicer cars, fancier tech, because after all, it's all ours. 98% of what Americans make is spent on themselves. And it's not that much better within the church setting. So the more we make and the more we spend on ourselves, we call that living according to our means. But I think if we really read the New Testament and a lot of the parables, so get ready to be uncomfortable this, uh, this season in Pops, it's a lot about warning us about this love of money. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, with many pangs. And here's the deal, guys. We can take what we read in the Bible and we can say, eh, I don't like that part. That doesn't fit with what my culture teaches me. Or we can recognize that the kingdom of God is the most upside down when it comes to something, when we think about something called common sense. The, the, the Bible teaches us things that Jesus says, definitely tells us things that make no sense when we look at it from his perspective, from the kingdom of God perspective. So with this background, let's look at this parable that Jesus was telling to lovers of money in the audience. Because contrary to what some people try to make it, this parable is not about what is heaven and hell going to be like literally. This parable is actually about the story of two people, one who loved God and one who loved and served mammon. So let's go through this verse by verse. See, we're not losing the verse-by-verse verse part of, of Pops. Luke 16, 19, we'll start there. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So this, this parable starts by introducing us to this rich man. How rich was he? He was filthy rich, this guy. It says he was clothed, and the verb tense when it says he was clothed, this word is endodusko, and when you use that verb tense in the Greek, it means that he's continually Clothes. So day after day, this man is wearing purple clothing. Now, why does that matter? He was a big fan of Barney or something? No, the reason why is because purple was indicated wealth or royalty back in the day. Purple linen was very hard to find. And as I was looking into why that would have been, apparently whatever dye they would have used to make clothing purple was very hard to find and very expensive because of that. And so why do I tell you about this Greek word about being continually clothed in something like purple? Because there's only one other place in the Bible where that verb is used in that tense. And that's in Mark 15, 17, when they're talking about Jesus and they say, and they clothed him, there's that word endodusko, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So think about this. Jesus is the only person who has ever walked on this planet who was worthy of wearing a color that says that he was forever royalty. Enduring every day, all the time, he was going to be royalty. But while he was wearing it, he was being mocked by the Roman soldiers at this time. And here's this unworthy rich man in this parable 
who dares to wear this purple linen every day. And not only was he wearing purple linen on the outside, but here's something that I found somewhat funny. Uh, Luke was telling us a joke here that I never realized, that the word when it says um, that, he was, that he had his uh, fine linen, that word is busson. Busson was a quality Egyptian cotton that was, that was for the best underwear, the highest quality underwear. So not o- Luke is telling me not only was he wearing purple on the outside, but his underwear was super fancy too. That's how rich this man was. And he had a Thanksgiving-level feast every single day. Okay, so we get this picture of this guy. Now what about the other man in this parable? Let's see, Luke 16, verses 20 to 21, the first part. It says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So do you know that Lazarus is the only person in all of the parables to have a name? Every other parable is just there was a rich man and there was another man or there, but, uh, there was a servant and those kinds of things. But here, Lazarus gets a name. And in fact, his name in the Hebrew is El-Azar. And El-Azar means the one whom God helps. But it certainly doesn't seem like God is doing too much helping, is it? Doesn't it? Lazarus is so poor that he's laid and he can't walk. So he's laid by members of his community in front of the gate of this rich man. Now, gated homes was also another sign of this guy's wealth, too. And here's Lazarus being laid there, poor, sick, covered with sores, neglected, hungry. El-Lazar, the one who God helps. He's too weak to work. He's too poor to buy his own food. And he's begging for this rich man to notice him and fill his belly even with the scraps from these daily feasts he was having. And he's probably watching this rich man decked out in his purple linen and, and, and filling his belly to overfilling and maybe even you know, taking like whatever food was on the table and like careless, you know, carelessly flipping it to the dogs. I'm telling you this because my, that's what my wife does at the kitchen table, right? And now the dog comes and begs at the table and she's like, see who she loves the most? That's not love. Just saying. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so we're good. All right. And, and Lazarus, he probably is also seeing some of the rich man's guests coming and going full to the brim, ketchup on their face, whatever. Like these guys are living lavishly. Meanwhile, here's Lazarus in front of the gate. But you know what's interesting? It's the dogs who actually come to minister to him. Now you might be thinking, what? So let's look at that. 1621, the second half of it. It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I've read this parable many, many times in the past, and I've always thought that the, this line about the dogs licking Lazarus was a way for Jesus to be like, it was so bad that even dogs were licking him. But in doing the word study for tonight, I learned something that floored me, that the word that is translated here in the ESV as moreover, that word is Allah, which always is used as a contrast term. Okay, it's like, if you were to say, like, on the other hand, or however, or except, like, it's, it's telling you, like, what was before, but now, on the other hand, this is what was happening. So what Jesus is telling us is, like, unlike the rich man and perhaps all his rich guests, these dogs, Allah, on the other hand, were doing something good for Lazarus, 
And it made me love dogs even more. And I'll just tell you, the dog loves me more than my wife. I'm just saying. But why, here's, what's, here's the deal. Why do dogs lick, right? Why do dogs lick? Well, the one time, you know, you come home and, and the dog's happy to see you, right? And, and, and she licks you or he licks you when you get home. That's a, that's a way of showing you affection. Another thing, why do dogs lick? Remember, when, if your dog ever had like, some sort of surgery, they have to wear that cone of shame thing, the, the, the lampshade on their head. Why? Because they want to lick their wounds because they know, they feel that when they lick their wounds, they're bringing healing and comfort to areas of affliction. So these dogs know that they don't control the food supply that's going inside and outside of the house. They know they can't help Lazarus in that way, but what they can do, they do. They lick his sores, which begs the question, what of the rich man's cats? And everybody knows where they are. They're under the table, you know, licking themselves. They don't care about humans, right? But the dogs, the dogs are there to provide this poor Lazarus with comfort. So let's go back to the parable where it gets really interesting at this point. It's Luke 16, 22 to 23. It says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So both Lazarus and the rich man die. Lazarus has no funeral. It says that he's escorted by the angels to Abraham's side. You see, Abraham greeting the faithful after the dead, that's a common Jewish theme. That's like, you know, when you hear stories about when I die, I'm going to see St. Peter at the pearly gates, like that kind of story. This is what being at Abraham's side would have meant to Jewish people at that time. Maybe even now, I'm not sure. But the word for Abraham's side, if you have a different translation of the Bible yourself, that, that word kolpos, which is in the Greek, kolpos, is bosom. Now, who uses the word bosom anymore? Not really, not very many people do. In fact, I had to look up what does the word bosom really mean. It usually means it describes a chest, right? Typically, you might say, like, the child was held against his mother's bosom. You know, usually, like, the word ample is in there, too. I don't know why the mom has to have a big bosom, but she has to most of the time when we use this word, right? And it's also used as a term to mean, like, close friendship. So, you know, if you're younger uh, generation here in the room, you know, if somebody's your BFF, right? Like, that's your bosom buddy, right? Or some people might even remember that show, Bosom Buddies, with Tom Hanks and the other guy, I forget his name. But they were close, close friends. And, and when they say that Abraham was taken up, I'm sorry, that Lazarus was taken up to Abraham's bosom, they're talking about that they were as close as two people could be together up there. How do I know this? There's a couple other times where we see this word, kolpos, John 13, 23. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So being at someone's side, being at their bosom, was a great level of closeness, of deep love and affection. Now you might say, well, how deep could that love possibly go? How about, could it describe the love between the Father and the Son? Look at John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Kolpos. He has made him known. So Lazarus is being held tightly in love after this earthly life that was filled with struggle and pain that Abraham took him and held him tight. Just as the Father holds the Son tight and just as we all will one day be held tight as well. And I think that's for somebody here tonight, I have to imagine that, that no matter what you have gone through, no matter what you are going through in this life, 
No matter where, whether you're questioning perhaps even if God is with you or why He apparently is not helping you through what you're going through, aren't you also El Lazar? Aren't you also the one that God helps? Know this, that if you persevere in your faith and you continue to come to know Him more day after day, your eternity will be filled with constant and daily being held close to the, to the side of your Creator. That's our promise. That this drop of water in the ocean that we are calling life is not your eternity. We have to keep our eyes, as Romans 12 says, keep our eyes looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Perseverance is the key for us as believers. And this parable, it tells us that another person has also died. It tells us that this rich man has died and he has a big funeral. Perhaps, you know, because he's so rich, you know, they, they, they paraded his dead body down the street and maybe they laid him in state at some rotunda somewhere. I don't know. He was a big deal. This guy had a lot of money. But his ultimate destination was not Abraham's bosom. It was torment in Hades. We're going to get to that in a moment. But this rich man, he looks up and he sees Lazarus being in, in, in just totally surrounded, enveloped in the love of the father Abraham. And now he sees that their roles have been reversed. Lazarus is now at the place of honor, and this formerly rich man is in the place of pain and struggle. So let's see what he does. It says Luke 16, verse 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. See, this rich man, he still thinks so highly of himself, even in the end time, even while he's in Hades itself, he thinks so highly of himself and so lowly of Lazarus. And instead of calling out to Lazarus and saying, I'm sorry for the way that I have treated you in my life, I'm sorry for that, what, I, what I've done to you, instead he calls out to Abraham, but the, the Hebrew words would have been Abi Abraham, Abi Abraham, which means my father Abraham. It's a personal connection. He's, he's calling out. He's saying, you are my father Abraham. Why does he reach out to Abraham with such personal kind of phrasing, calling him my father Abraham? Because he's trying to prove that he deserves to be in heaven. Because he's got Jewish blood that's flowing through his veins. He's one of the chosen people. Why, wouldn't the, why in the world would he not be by Abraham's side? Abraham is his ancestral father. Bloodlines of his entire bloodline can track itself back to Abraham. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's kind of a silly thing to assume. Why would someone who lived such an uncaring life think that somehow he deserves any kind of spiritual rewards after death? I mean, he, he feasted every day, it says. Every day, which means he and his servants were never able to even fulfill one of those commandments, keep the Sabbath holy, right? And he's not even, by any kind of works-based standard, he's not even keeping these, that one of the Big Ten, let alone the 600 or so commandments in the Old Testament. And he's thinking that he somehow deserves this by his bloodline. But don't we also do that ourselves sometimes today? How many people check that box Christian because, well, yeah, I'm American, I, I grew up here, and... And uh, I come from generations of, of Christians, my parents, my grandparents, their parents, all, on and on and on. They were all good church-going folks. They always checked the box on the census for Christians. So yeah, my, my uh, eternity, that's inherited. I got that. 
That no, you know, no matter what I actually believe or practice, me and God, we're good. I said some words even a few, a few times, maybe even a, a long time ago, and yeah, life changed. That's not for me. That's not for me. But like I said, you know, me and God, we're good. We're good now. I can't tell you how many people I see who think that way. Within church walls especially, where they think, well, of course I inherited my inheritance. I come from a line of, of Christian believers. Our whole family believes. Or maybe you're here thinking, well, I'm not like this rich man from this parable. I actually do a lot of great stuff for God. I go to church every Sunday. I come to pop pops on Wednesdays. I, I play on the worship team at church. I lead small groups. I, I, I go all over town telling people about Jesus. Surely I've earned my eternity. Well, brothers, hear this tonight, that no matter who you are. I don't care if you trace your ancestry back to Mary and Joseph in the manger. I don't care if you even can trace it back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. None of it matters. I mean, I don't care if your good works are like you have Billy Graham, Billy Graham style crusades and you're bringing thousands and thousands every day to the Lord. You have not inherited and you cannot earn your eternity. Your eternity comes from who you know not your family lineage, and not what you have done. Amen? So if you have not sought after the Lord, if you have not personally accepted what He has done that led to your complete repentance and heart change, then tonight is the night to change that. Because you have no idea when your last day is. And if you're, if you're thinking that I'm good, we're good, everything's fine, I'm doing the right things, just know that you have a Father in heaven who wants to bear hug you against his chest if only you would surrender it all to him. That's the kind of God that we serve. But this is not what this rich man has recognized. In fact, he continues to show his little care for Lazarus because he actually calls him by name, which means that he knew Lazarus' name even while he was alive. He knew him more than just that beggar at the gate. He knew Lazarus' struggles, but he intentionally ignored them. And rather than asking Lazarus' forgiveness, he issues more orders. He wants Lazarus to ease his own suffering. And can we just take a moment here to, to imagine what it would be like to be Lazarus in this moment? Like, what would you say to this rich man who has mistreated you when you... When, when he could have so easily helped you, right? The hours and hours you spent begging at his gate just for scraps from his table. Or the times when he walked by and looked the other way, wouldn't even pay attention to your calls. All because, in his eyes, you did not matter. And now, this rich man has the audacity to demand that you put your finger in water so he can suck on it? That's nasty. And I don't want, you know, the, the Pops podcast to get an explicit tag, but as I was trying to put myself in Lazarus' position, some not-so-choice words came to mind of what I would think I would say back to somebody who treated me so poorly in life that now he expects to suck on my finger while he's in torment. But I, I really am amazed at our brother Lazarus in this story. I can't leave the Sermon on the Mount behind. Look at what Lazarus shows us what it means like to be a child of the king. Matthew 5, 43 to 45, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
in the courtroom of right and wrong, of good and evil, Lazarus has every reason to let this rich man have it. Maybe he could even do a little bit of mocking, maybe a little nose-blowing at this rich man himself. But just as he was silent all the days, suffering at the rich man's gate, he is silent in his time of power, even while he continues to receive insults from somebody he now has power over. And if we as Christians could learn that power of silence, could we be the same today? What a powerful witness we would be that rather than constantly seeking power over people, how can I get more power over people, political or otherwise, how can I just get more and more power over people so I can tell them what to do, I can judge them, I can call out their sins, I can ridicule them. Oh, if we could just be silent more often than we speak. That we would show everyone that our power is not our own, but it's found in the one whom we follow. And that power is put on display, as Jesus showed us, with self-sacrifice, other-oriented, doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, I went to the cross for you kind of love. That's what we're called to do, brothers. We're not winning anyone to the Lord by trying to get power over them. When we put power under them, when we elevate them to where God says they are, now we're doing what he calls us to do. So this rich man, he makes this request to Abraham, and how does Abraham respond? Verses 25 through 26, it says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Father Abraham doesn't respond in anger or judgment either. He just states some facts. He opens by calling the rich man technon. Technon means child. There's other words he could have used for like, hey dude, in the, in the, in the Greek. There are words that he could have chosen. But he instead calls him by a loving word, technon. That's the same word that the, in another parable that perhaps we'll look at in more de detail in Luke 15, when the, when, the parent, when the lost son comes running back home to the father, the father calls him technon. In love, he calls him child. The same word here, Abraham, is using for this rich man. He's not denying this rich man's assertion that he comes from a long line of Jewish ancestry, but he doesn't sugarcoat the reality that the good things that this man has experienced in his life are no more. That every good thing that this rich man has experienced is now surpassed by the eternal goodness that Lazarus is now experiencing. And every bad thing that Lazarus experienced in his earthly life is now surpassed by the anguish that this rich man now is experiencing. So we've got to look at this. What is this rich man really experiencing? What's going on here? I've heard people say that what he is experiencing is the burning fires of hell on his body. That's what he's feeling. But the word that is used for anguish when it says that this man was in anguish is this word odinao, which, odineo, which we'll look at um, in a little more detail. But essentially it means in, intense emotional pain. I'll give you more in a, in a moment. So this parable, this parable does not say that Lazarus' sores are healed and now he's well fed. And it doesn't mention any of that. We can assume it, but it doesn't mention any of it. Rather, it's using this contrasting experiences. Hey, uh, rich man, you experienced all this good stuff. 
in, uh, on earth. Now Lazarus is experiencing that in heaven and even more. And similarly, the bad things like we were saying before. So what Lazarus is no longer feeling is that emotional pain, that intense emotional pain that Lazarus was feeling on earth, being this man at the gate, being ignored, being forgotten, being told he was worthless every day. That is no longer what Lazarus is experiencing. In fact, it is what Abraham himself is experiencing. That's what Odineo means, this anguish that he's feeling, intense emotional pain and regret. So the point of this parable is not what does literally the fires of hell look like. It's that one man was so in love with mammon that he had no love for God or those who God loves, so he goes the ultimate distance he can from God, which in this parable is called Hades, but we may know that as hell. So brothers, let me scare the hell out of you. <laughs> or at least your vision of what hell is. When people hear me speak about how God loves or, or who God loves, I often get people who say, well, do you really think God loves those sinners? Because I can't believe that. And I, I, I wish that this, and you insert your favorite sinner group there, I hope that those people are burning in hell when it's all done. And you may be one of those people that feel that way. Like The only way you could possibly think that you would be fulfilled uh, by God in the afterlife is knowing that your enemies are burning in hell. And so I don't necessarily think that that is what hell is about, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But So I'm often asked, are you, do you believe that there's literally a hell? I do. The teachings of the Bible are clear. There is a hell, and there are people who in their free will will choose not to accept what Jesus has done for them. And the place that they go is a place outside of heaven. The word is Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual town outside of Jerusalem where they burned the garbage. That's where the garbage was thrown out. If you, if you are refusing God, Jesus is saying that you are choosing to be in the trash heap. Because God's city is, has no place for people who would prefer to be in the trash heap. Because how could a loving God force people to be with Him for all eternity and hang out with all these angels and creatures and worship the Lord like we did earlier today? How could He force somebody to do that who has no desire to do that? And how could He force them to do that for an eternity? So for our free will that the Lord has given us, He has said, I have a place for you. It's not my desire that you would go there, but if you don't want to be with me for all eternity, a loving God, I cannot force you to be here. But look at Revelation 21-25. I didn't put it in your uh, notes, but the gates of heaven are always open, is what it says. That's an interesting phrase when he's talking about heaven. The gates of heaven are always open. And C.S. Lewis once wrote, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And here's the beauty of our God, brothers. When you're wrestling with heaven and hell, if you've got teenagers and they come and ask you about hell, oh boy, they ask me stuff about this all the time. God, uh, oh, do you really think that grandma and grandpa are going to go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus and all these things? And I say, God is always going to give you a choice. He gives us all a choice. He gives us full access to heaven if we would just choose Him and choose what He has done for us. He gives us access to heaven, but He is also aware that some people are never going to choose Him. So He's given an alternate location for them that we call hell, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. So what He's experiencing, this rich man, 
is not an angry father putting his dear child's hand to the burning stove. He's not experiencing my flesh is burning kind of sensation. He's experiencing odineo, deep sadness and regret. A more literal translation of that word is he is going down in sorrow. He's drowning in the regret of what he has chosen for himself. But even despite all of that, his heart remains set against God. And his heart is so set that it will never change no matter what. By his own choosing, the rich man has set a great chasm between him and God. A Grand Canyon-sized chasm between him and God. But it's not a chasm that God has constructed. It's a chasm within his own hardened heart that this man has chosen to create. And it's a chasm that Lazarus cannot cross, even if Lazarus had the desire. So I believe that this rich man is starting to recognize at this point in the parable what his eternal choice now means. So he says in verses 27 to 31, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the rich man is recognizing here, Lazarus is not going to be his errand boy. He's not going to be his servant, bringing him food and drink from the great banquet in heaven. But he's thinking, maybe I could send this errand boy to my five brothers, which is an interesting number. Because if he has five brothers, that means there are six total. And, and six in the um, um, thought of the Hebrew people was an unlucky or an evil number. Which is why when we think about the, uh, the, the, the number of the beast, 666, so three is the number of perfection, six is the number of evil, so the beast is the perfect evil, is where that 666 comes from. So this, there are six brothers. But you know what's interesting about the number six is that if you got to seven, it's the perfection number. God creates in seven and all these things that we know about the number seven, multiples of seven, we see all the time in the Bible. So if only that... This rich man had accepted Lazarus as his brother. They could have had seven, is what one commentator said. That they could have, he could have come to a point of understanding perfection. But Abraham gives this rich man the clear truth that the rich man, his brothers, and all of creation have been given enough knowledge to recognize who God is without Lazarus going to them. Romans 1, 19-20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So even if Lazarus was able to return from the dead to warn them, it would not have had the effect that this rich man thinks it would have, which is obviously a clear like a foreshadowing to Jesus' return from the dead. And I, and I think what we need to re recognize here, brothers, as we're looking at this parable, is that this is really where the rubber meets the road for all of us. Because we can read a parable and think that's a wonderful story, and I feel so bad for that rich man. But I tell you what's been so captivating for me as I read these parables is that I am personally challenged in each and every one of them. Because they give everyone, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, it gives you all a challenge, right? Perhaps you're someone in here today and you're like, I'm not sure that I really believe this whole thing. Like, 
It, it, I, I'm going along with it because it's the best I can do right now, but I'm not sure that I really believe all this stuff about, about God and Jesus. Can I just tell you, there's so much historical evidence, even outside of the Gospels themselves, that prove that there really was a historical flesh and blood Jesus who walked this earth 2,000 years ago and He performed miracles. Nobody had any answers for them. He died a criminal's death on the cross and the tomb in which He was laid was empty three days later. That is not from just the Bible. That is from books of history of that time. And so maybe like me, early in my journey, you needed to know more about these proofs. And to you, I could encourage you with some great books that are out there on this topic. For me, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Letters from a Skeptic, Greg Boyd, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. These were all books easily accessible, made me understand how much beautiful history there is about who Jesus was. And some of you here are like, listen, I don't need that. That doesn't work for me. I, I already know who Jesus is. I, I, I follow after him. Do you know what the greatest evidence is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead to the people around you? It's when His disciples follow the one true God and not any other God, including this God of man. The evidence of this is when we put on display His resurrection and how it has released the Holy Spirit to reside within us. And when the Holy Spirit resides within you, the only thing that can come out is the fruit. That's what comes out of your mouth. That's what comes out of your mind. That's what comes out of the way that you live your life. That the love of God that Jesus showed in His earthly life is now living eternally within us. And so we cannot help but overflow with that love towards others. So I'm going to get really real with this tonight, brothers. If you are a follower of Christ tonight, then you are this rich man in the parable. And I'm not just talking about worldly riches, but if you have a single income coming in, even if you're making minimum wage today, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. You are a rich man in the world's eyes today. And I'm also talking about spiritual richness, right? If you are a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit residing within you. There is nothing of more value than that. And here's where it hits. Just like the rich man, we are surrounded by the poor and the needy. Literally surrounded by them. There are so many homeless in our city. And I know that in the past, I have gone by the, the teachings of the elders before me who have said, always look the other way. They're going to want something. You know, they're going to ask for you for money. They're going to spend it on alcohol. You're not doing them any favors. Don't even look at them. But as I was going through this parable, the Lord convicted my heart. And he said to me that these people who you pass when you're coming back from a sports game and they're all out on the street or when you're driving down the north side on your way from 79 to 28 every single day on the way to work, when you see those people, they are El Lazar to me. They are the ones who I help. And I have sent you to help them. And just like those disciples were sent out on the mission field in Matthew 10, we have been called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, the one who calls them his children. James 2, 14-16 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we can read these words, and so many others like it, and we can say, That's nice. What happens next? <laughs> but I believe by doing so, what we are doing, brothers, is fixing a great chasm 
between God and ourselves. We can't gloss over these types of verses in James 2. We can't gloss over the verses in Matthew 25 when he says, when we have served Him. What God has impressed on my heart is that if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. John 14, 15. Not just the commands that I agree with, but all of them. Because I know Him, and I trust Him, and I want to live my life for Him. I don't want to be a checkbox Christian who glosses over the difficult teachings and moves on to the stuff that's easier for me and doesn't interfere with my life. But I also don't want to cry out, Lord, Lord, and have Him reply that He never knew me because I was not on mission with Him to His lost sheep. And the Lord is telling me that it is time for me to lose any notion of a divided loyalty between mammon and the one true God. And it's time for me to use the resources that He has given me to help those that He calls me to help. So brothers, I've personally myself felt this calling over this past year to serve my homeless brothers and sisters. In fact, my entire family has confirmed this calling because they have received it as well. And I somewhat hesitate to share this because I don't want anyone in this place to think that I have arrived or I'm doing anything perfectly or that I'm earning my salvation or any of those types of things. This is just a a specific way of... I was walking this way when it came to my thoughts about the homeless and the poor and the needy. And God said, you're going the other way. And that changed. And it happens in all of our lives. And it can, it can happen in any of us, in any area that of struggle that we find ourselves in. But for me, my heart has been overwhelmed by the number of homeless people in our city. So my kids, they started making bags, bags of food. Because I do. I feel uncomfortable giving you know, cash to people. But, I, but, I, but, I, but I, we, they started making bags of food. In fact, one of the children will put like a joke or something in there, like a dad joke kind of thing for the homeless uh, to be able to read that as they're eating whatever non-perishable foods that we put in these bags. And you know what's so beautiful? I went out there thinking, okay, I'm going to follow God's lead. I'm going to give to these homeless and it's going to be a blessing for me. Praise God. Hmm. But you know the one who's been receiving <laughs> blessings? Yeah, it's not, I thought you know, it would be a blessing for them. It's been such a tremendous blessing for me. It's been a blessing to meet people. I've gotten to meet George, who's always on the same street corner every day. The poor guy has some sort of neurologic difficulties in his feet. He can't feel them. He's got deformities of his legs because of it. He can't find shoes that fit. He can't find a doctor that'll take him seriously. And as I drive by, now I roll down the window and I talk to George. Sometimes I even stop at the green light. And sometimes people get mad behind me. But we talk, and I get an update on how he's doing. And I give, him a, I give him the food, and I look him right in the eye, and I say, the Lord sees you. I got to meet Megan. Megan's gone through a ton, a ton of like, difficult times in her life. And been harmed in many, many ways. But I get to tell her uh, that the Lord sees her in her struggle. I've even gotten to meet a guy, Western Psych Mike. They call him Western Psych Mike because he has outrageous conversations with himself at volumes louder than my own. <laughs> And he's got a little bit of mental health issues, and the, the other homeless people call him Western Psych Mike. <laughs> but I've gotten to tell Western Psych Mike as much as he understands it about a God who loves him. And I'm not saying I do any of this perfectly, but for as long as I live, I want to overflow more every day with the perfect one who, who lives and resides within me. Not because I'm earning salvation, but because you can never earn what you have been freely given. But because of my salvation, because of my God who has been so good to me, I can follow His direction even into places that make me uncomfortable. So maybe for you, it's time to start noticing the homeless at the gate. The poor people at your gate. 
Or maybe you don't feel like that's where you're called. And that's okay. I don't know what God's calling you to do. But He's calling you to somewhere. And He's calling you to someone. And somewhere that's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. Perhaps they won't even be someone that's coming to Pops or to church or whatever. But it's someone who's going to show up wearing a dress when they shouldn't be. Or something like that. There's someone that is going to be difficult for you to show love to. And God is saying, that's what I want you to show. How powerful I am within you. Because remember, it was not the homelessness or the painful sores or the hunger that Lazarus suffered from most. It was the emotional abandonment from all of those around him. And let it never be said that that is the case of Pop's men. I want to be known as people who intentionally run to those who are in need who are in need around us. And to be physically and spiritually embracing the forgotten that are around us. The abandoned, the hurting people, and let's let lead them directly, directly into the bosom of ourselves. And as they get used to that, let them know that there's something even greater. Someone even greater that's going to hold them for all eternity. Amen? There's only one who can cross the great chasm of the heart. And his name is Jesus. And he reached out across our chasm. Now he can reach across any chasm of the heart we would allow him to use us. Amen. Kishore ended his message with one verse that stood out to me personally. The verse was John 14, 15, and it's where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But if you go back just a few verses, Jesus is very clear on what he means by keep my commandments. Just a few verses earlier in John 13, verse 34, Jesus tells us exactly what his commandment is. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And our question out there to you is, how are you doing with that? Jesus loved better than anyone that ever lived. We know that. He loved the poor. He loved the mistreated. He loved the marginalized. He loved the unlovable. He loved people that nobody else even thought were capable of receiving love. And Jesus showed love in so many ways. Jesus showed love by attending gatherings. Jesus showed love by getting on his hands and knees and washing feet. Jesus showed love, the ultimate love, by dying for each and every one of us, by being nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns, suffering so each and every one of us could be free. So our question to you today, how are you doing with Jesus' commandment? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you keeping it or do you have work to do? We hope this is just a reminder to try every day to love like Jesus. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time and have a wonderful week.